Hey travelers, today we will discuss travel to the capital city of Egypt. As of 2021, Cairo is listed as the sixth most populous city in the world. In this episode, we'll also discuss some of the outlying areas of Giza. I'm your host, Katie. I've owned the travel blog Trouncing Around for nine years. I've backpacked and photographed my way through 72 countries. I'm an adventure junkie and have the need to experience the new, or at least the new to me. I have lots of stories to tell and tips to give, so let's jump in. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining me in my third podcast. Hopefully this is one that really catches your attention. After I returned from Egypt, I had a lot of people telling me Egypt was in their travel dreams. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense because of pyramids. But believe it or not, Egypt can be a really tricky place. It's a place that's really used to hosting visitors from all over the world. Estimates from 2019 pre-COVID were that it hosted 14 million visitors that year. That is crazy. A lot of people. And Egyptians really love their tourists because many of their livelihoods depend on tourism. But because of the professional nature of tourism in Egypt, it is really easy to get swindled. I visited Egypt in July of 2020, which, you know, I would highly recommend going sooner rather than later because all the popular sites are empty. Anyone who's visited Egypt will tell you that they remember the swarms of crowds. So, My experience in Egypt was definitely different than the typical tourist recollection. But I do remember that the intensity really starts as soon as you get off the plane and enter the airport in Cairo because it's a very busy place. And it's difficult to count all the, in quotes I'm saying, unofficial residents of a city. That's a really messed up phrase. But Cairo is ranked somewhere between the fifth and ninth largest cities in the world. And like, most populous urban centers, that is an issue where they're not able to count everyone because not everyone has proper identification or living. Um, So you get off the plane and that really strikes you what a big place this is just as you're sort of coming in over the city. And a lot of flights, they'll come in at night. I'm going to talk more about that later on, but you get off the plane and then immediately have someone check your health paperwork. And at the time they had thermal body temperature scanners. And something you'll often find outside the Western world is you'll have to pay to enter the country at sort of this national bank counter. And at this time, you're looking over at the counter, you're trying to figure out where you're supposed to be going, and you're going to be totally swarmed with men who want to be your airport minders. In my opinion, it's really best to have preparations pre-planned somehow. So for example, what we did was we did book a tour to minimize some of this pushiness. And the tour company sent a very efficient man who sort of rescued us from the crowd. And never before had I used an airport minder like this. I, I really didn't like it, but it definitely seemed like a necessity. He met us with our names in a paper and he wheeled our backpacks around the airport And he took us to the payment window where you pay to enter the country. And something kind of uh, unique about this airport minder, which seemed like typical standard 
operating procedure is he cut all the lines for us. So whereas if you're trying to go through the airport on your own, it's going to take you a really long time. But um, this guy and apparently people who are in his profession, they just jump in front of the entire line. And um, he takes care of all the logistics, like get making sure you go to the ATM and get currency. And this minder is really important because he's going to connect you to your tour company van, which I guess that part could be really easy to mess up and get into the wrong van because everyone wants you to come with them. Um, and they don't allow the tour companies to come inside the building. So you have to use sort of this middleman to get you where you're going. And I would ask in advance if you should tip this airport minder because um, our tour tipped him for us. This next part I'm writing predominantly for Western tourists, but something that I think you should know is that I was pretty shocked arriving in Cairo in the middle of the night. I personally felt that sense of euphoria, excited for the unfamiliar. To me, the grimier the better. The buildings and streets near the airport were in quite a state of disarray. They had a crisis which just ended in 2014, and that's exactly what it looks like when you arrive there. I don't think you should let this scare you away. As long as I had a man with me, I felt very safe in Egypt. More on that later. But Looking out into the night, you would see cafes with men, only men, sitting inside of them. It's improper for women to be out at night, but nighttime is really the time of day when the city comes alive because of the heat of midday. So you might even see some older ladies in the streets with their family. What brought me to Egypt was a journey around the world over the course of the summer, which I ended up calling Around the World in 80 Days. Originally, I had planned to go through the South Pacific, making my way westward around the world, but COVID happened. And as borders closed, like the sound of jail cells sliding shut, we ended up country hopping to whatever country remained open to us. And Egypt remained open to tourists at the height of COVID. And for that, I will forever be grateful to the country for welcoming us with open arms, especially as Americans whose passport was very weak at the time. The height of summer was not the best weather, but overall, I had such a grand an interesting time that I would say, even as a cold weather person, the heat did not prevent me from having a really wonderful time. In the morning, whichever hotel you stay at, you will probably be staying close to Giza. Um, you'll wake up, you'll have lots of fruit, yogurt, and bread. And on this first day, you'll most likely go to the pyramids just because logistically it's really close to the airport. That's what most people do. You'll probably take a taxi to get there or either ride with your guide. And there is a ticket gate simple, similar to entering a museum. And this is just to enter the grounds. And here at this gate, you should inquire about actually physically entering inside of the pyramids, like crawling back into their staircases. Um, the inside of the pyramids were closed when I visited. I was pretty bummed about that, but I hope you get to do it. And at Giza, there's a really nice view overlooking the city. Everything you've heard about how the pyramids are really close to um, the busy, busy metropolis of Cairo, that's absolutely true. It's like straight up desert that's protected with these huge monoliths, like very fore foreboding uh, shadows out in the desert. And then just like people live in their lives, I mean, a little ways down. So that overlook is something that really stuck out to me. But 
Also, Egypt's really special because as a local, anywhere you dig, you might accidentally stumble upon a historical treasure. And a lot of locals live in this Giza a residential area because they are guides and it's closer to where they're working. But um, if they are living really anywhere in Egypt, but these people who live in Giza, they'll tell you that they cannot dig in their actual yard without permission from the government because they might, you know, find something extremely valuable. So You'll take the path up to the pyramids at the um, grounds, and there's a lot of walking on this trip. I would say invest in some type of comfortable athletic sandals or hiking shoe, and you'll see the largest pyramids, which are Khufu and Khafre. And I really like history, but I began to get a little bit confused at all the ruling logistics, so I'm going to lay it out for you. Khufu is the largest pyramid, and it's also called Cheops in Greek. And this is known as the Great Pyramid. So any sort of image you have about pyramids in your mind, this is it. It's Khufu, also called Cheops. So there we have it. We already have three names for a special pyramid, and it gets confusing. But the second largest is called Khafre. And Khafre is really interesting because it has its tip, which is covered by white limestone still on it, whereas all the other limestone on the other pyramids has been stripped by looters. I'll make a sort of generalization here for your understanding. You'll see various smaller pyramids, and the smallest ones were for usually wives, and medium-sized pyramids were for rulers who either died early or they didn't rule long. Um, the bigger the pyramid, the greater the king, the longer the rule. Something super interesting about ancient Egypt culture was that the dead were always buried on the west side of the Nile, and this is something that you will see in Giza. But also in all the other ancient civilizations all the way down the Nile to Sudan, and the east side is associated with sunrise or life. So any sort of structure where living people are going to be using it, like a temple that's going to be on your east side of the river. And anything for someone who's already passed into the afterlife, it's going to be on the west side. So city planning was really interesting in the society that idolized the sun. Hopefully your guide will teach you all about the pyramid trapdoors and the story of mummification in the jackal, which the jackal was really new and interesting to me because I might not do a good job of explaining this, but in really, really ancient Egyptian times before mummification ever started, apparently people would drag their dead outside of the city and the jackal would eat the soft tissue parts of the human, which may have led to this sort of thought of being preserved for afterlife. And I really liked that idea of such an interesting topic like mummification starting originally with nature. Something interesting that I wasn't expecting to find was the treasure of the Khufu ship. And they estimate that this ship is from 2500 BC. We know it's from the reign of Khufu Cheops, and it's part of the grave goods that were intended for use during the afterlife. 
Now, what Google will tell you is that this boat was built for Pharaoh, but information on the ground states that that's only partially correct. And this was a big takeaway from my trip was that when you live a world away, information that you think you know about an ancient civilization is really difficult to precisely convey. But my thoughts are that whole truths are probably more likely found on the ground. And this was something that I only found on my trip, but Hetta Ferries, which I'll spell her name for you, H-E-T-E-P-H-E-R-E-S, the mother of Khufu Kiops, uh, she had the oldest tomb that was ever found intact. And her son buried her outside of his pyramid, which Egyptologists are unsure if this was either A, an insult, like perhaps she was banished from her family, um, wasn't able to be buried in her crypt, or B, if her son moved it here to hide in plain sight away from robbers. From this hole in the sand, which you can see when, on your visit, which is just outside of the pyramid at its base, there's a perfectly um, preserved hole, which they pulled this ship from, and it's now in the museum. But they preserved this ship, which they wanted her to use in the afterlife. And the boat was made of cedar from Lebanon, which I visited Lebanon after Egypt. And they call these trees the cedars of God, which are almost entirely cut down. But just getting a feel for how far Egyptian workers carried that wood across the Middle East is really awe-inspiring. This boat of Kiops Hetaferis is kept inside a small indoor exhibit and museum for the sun boats. With so much ancient history, it's really difficult to discern, you know, what are you going to spend your time on, what sites, but I would not miss the sunboat because it was really incredible to see how big it was and the materials that it was made out of. And I'll sort of give you a better idea for just how grand and lavish this lifestyle of the pharaohs was. Something else that I might mention is that metal detectors are at the entrance of big Egyptian sites, and here you'll be expected to pay extra if you want to use a professional-grade camera. But you can avoid the fee if you tell them no. For example, I said, like, I won't use my Canon. I'm just going to use my cell phone to capture photos in this area. And I still got to bring my Canon in. I just wasn't able to use it in those few spots. Each time you go through an exhibit security, you can try to save yourself some money by doing that. Speaking of money, an unpaid recommendation that I have is to book with Egypt Fun Tours. Specifically, if he's available to you, you should ask to be guided by the company owner, Hamada. He does a very nice job of providing for you what you might need, such as COVID tests, which can be very tricky to obtain in Egypt. I might even recommend bringing a box with you uh, with the Navica app to test yourself just because testing was so hard to find. But Hamada was awesome and he knows a fantastic secret site where you can drive to see all the pyramids together in one camera frame. And Hamada not only showed me around Cairo Giza, but he took me down to the Nubian sites deep in the Sahara, which are on the border with Sudan. I hope to record more on that later. But Finishing up in Giza, you'll see the Sphinx, which in my opinion is actually quite small for all the hype. Um, you might try to kiss her, uh, line your face up just right. It, mine did not come out. They were just totally goofy pictures, but sometimes people can get a good kiss with the Sphinx. 
And um, it's really interesting to ponder just how that Sphinx came to be in existence. No one really knows, but they've got lots of logical guesses at this point. Near Giza, you can find shops that demonstrate how the earliest paper was made. Basically, they take threads from papyrus plant and thread them together into paper. And there are lots of artworks, pretty much anything you can think of available on these papyrus plants. But they can be quite expensive if you purchase them from these shops. And if you have a good guide, he will probably tell you not to buy anything expensive here. Just learn about the process. And if you see anything you want to purchase, perhaps just ask him to direct you to a cheaper place to buy it. Or um, just tell your guide and he can pretty much get anything for you that you want. Here's a tip about your scheduling. In a place with so, so much history, be careful to mix up your experiences throughout the day. For example, when you do the pyramids, it'll be such a big undertaking that when you do that, here's a tip, you will want to do all your big outdoor excursions early in the morning because of the heat and there might be crowded lines. So any famous site, you'll want to be there ready to view them at sunrise. But when you do go to these big sites, you'll probably be exhausted. And when I travel, I like jam-packed days. But if you have a morning with a lot of information about history, perhaps do a bit of shopping and have some lunch in the middle of the day because you're going to be tired. The heat really takes it out of you and you're going to want to relax. You might even go to your hotel pool or take a little nap in the afternoon. Um, Rooftop pools are really cool to have in Cairo because you can just look out over the city and in the afternoon traffic gets really bad. So don't over plan for the afternoon. It's really hard to get anywhere in the city once the traffic is out and rolling. After visiting the pyramids, you have to visit the Egyptian Museum of Antiquities, which I'm sad to say is going to be close to you, even though it's the world's oldest museum. How incredible is that? I'm a person who loves feeling like an archaeologist, so sifting through the dust didn't bother me. And that's probably from spending countless hours sifting through my grandfather's dark attic library when I was a little girl. But the old museum felt super authentic. I'm guessing that I'm in the minority with those thoughts, which is probably why they reconstructed the building. They moved it across town. So this new museum is what you are going to see. And tourists like new and sparkly things. So we were actually one of the last people to get to visit this big pink museum of antiquities. Um, And they were actually physically taking mummies out of their displays. We saw King Tut's exhibit. You can see his mask, which might be the most secure and regulated place in all of Egypt. I mean, I was self-conscious even breathing inside of that exhibit because eyes followed my every move. And after seeing so many incredible things from this ancient land, I left going like, what's with the world's obsession with King Tut? Simply because there are so many cool things to learn. Anyways, the museum is going to be replaced by the Grand Egyptian Museum, also called the GEM, GEM, great marketing on their part. I'm sure it will be a gem. But this is probably the museum that you're going to visit. And if you research some of the new construction photos, it looks totally amazing. It'll be the largest archaeological museum in the world. And anyways, I would recommend visiting the museum early on in your trip because if you're like me and initially knew next to nothing about Egypt, it'll orient you about some of the basics before you dig deeper on your tour.
While on the subject of security, when you're in Egypt and Cairo only, you get an armed tourist police who follows you. And I kind of guess that this might be for the tourists, for your safety, also probably to help create jobs. If you travel far and wide, having an armed escort with semi-automatic um, rifles is not really anything new to you. But this this was pretty ironic and hilarious just because for security purposes, my stylist usually go in and out and um, try to be unseen and, and not make a fuss. Whereas these police, they're going to turn on your, their lights and everyone's going to look at you and know that you're the tourist in town, announce your presence. And to me, it just poses a greater security threat. It, it's just really loud and in your face. Definitely good for a laugh. Um, with these police escorts, anything you do out and about in the city center, you can expect to have them there. Um, but in Cairo, you should definitely spend some time marveling at the mosques. The city is known as a city with a thousand spires, and it's talking about the huge number of mosques that are there. Anytime you look out on the skyline, you're going to see a lot of them. You probably won't be able to count them on two hands. So two of the most beautiful mosques that I really liked were outside, um, the outside, the architecture of the Al Hussein Mosque. I'm going to spell it for you, A-L-H-U-S-S-E-I-N Mosque. And then I like the inside of the Saladin Citadel. And um, out of those two, my favorite was the Al Hussein, simply because I got a feel for the beat of the street. Here I had a group of teenage girls who they wanted to take a selfie with me. Uh, and that's definitely not a first for me when traveling abroad, but it's interesting because the country does get so many tourists, so I wasn't expecting them to be so excited to see me. And here in this area, they have a tourist bazaar. It was closed because of COVID, but um, I hope you get to visit. And I spent some time just wandering the back alleyways and seeing what everyday life was like. If you do attend the bazaar, you, of course, know you have to haggle. And I mean, really haggle, like haggle down and down and down one more time, like three times haggle down. But um I was most interested in the typical sites of the alleyways and the people out walking, doing errands. There are boys like carrying big flats of bread on their heads. And this is a nice place to escape the afternoon heat at the local historical coffee shop where you can sit amongst eclectic Egyptian decorations or what I preferred was actually sitting in the alley at a table. It was really lively, a good place to people watch. But I would say just keep your wits about you here. There are, you know, some various acts and touts that go through this alleyway. And just don't be scared to be firm. And that's anywhere in Egypt. Be firm. Got to be strong. But this coffee cafe is called El Fashaway. It's two words. E-L space F-I-S-H-A-W-Y. And I'm going to give you the alternate spelling too because it can be very hard to find on maps. It's F-I-S-H-A-W-I. And this place claims to be the oldest coffee and shisha shop in Cairo. And it's definitely one of the oldest coffee and tea houses in the world. Egyptians will also tell you that Turkish coffee hails from this location, which the Ottomans, yes, they did rule this area. And they could have taken the famous Turkish coffee back with them and 
you know, rebranding it as Turkish coffee, but Egyptians, because of their pride for their culture, they make this what I would call claims of first, and they do it pretty frequently. So I'll talk more about falafel later. But anyways, at this cafe, Egyptian artists and politicians, they visit it. It's very well known. It's the most popular coffee place in Egypt. And it just, even if you don't like coffee, it has a wonderful ambiance. And it was a famous hangout for a Nobel Prize winning author. It was a really stimulating afternoon for me, and I just liked walking around the streets around the Al Hussein Mosque during the evening golden hour. In a different area of town near the Citadel of Saladin, try a no-frills, cheap, and amazing falafel that sometimes has a line of locals that tails all the way down the street, especially during um, like feast time. People will go get this special meal to bring back home to their families. But this restaurant is so local that like many things in Egypt, I actually had a difficult time back researching it for this episode to figure out where I had been. But the restaurant has an Arabic name for baby donkey, or basically the restaurant is called Jackasses. As far as I can tell, they have a local, or sorry, a location on Foursquare called El Gahesh, and I'm gonna spell it for you, E-L space G-A-H-S-H. Um, and here's the address. It's 13 Abd El Magid El Laban Street, Port Said Street, um, As Said Zayim, Musahabit, and Kura, Egypt. So if you're really interested in finding that falafel uh, location, reach out to me. I'll be happy to get you this address. If you go, you'll be met by friendly locals and you'll be the only tourist in sight. And what's so special about this falafel is falafel was first popular with the pharaohs. And unlike falafel from other countries, which are made from chickpeas, the fritters are made with fava beans in Egypt. And there's a little fight over exactly where the falafel hails from. And this is what I'm talking about, the the fight of the first. And um, people want to know, like, does falafel come from Egypt? Is it Israeli? Is it Lebanese? And from here, um, you can just get a taste of this special falafel. But from this restaurant, you'll need transportation to the Saladin Citadel because it's a pretty heavy walk uphill. This is Cairo's famous citadel from the Middle Ages. Its leaders throughout history lived here. It was built under Islam's most famous hero, the first sultan of Egypt, Saladin, super famous. I'm sure you've heard of him. If you recognize that name, he was the crusade's leader against Christianity. And he had the citadel built in 1176, but he never, it, the, the place never saw a siege. The citadel was never in a siege. The Ottomans, however, did take over Cairo. A military architect, tech named Mimar Sinan was responsible for tearing down any buildings in Cairo that did not fit the Ottoman plan, which he torn down many, but he left the citadel. Why? Well, we don't know. Obviously, he thought the mosque inside was worthy of preserving. Interestingly enough, the mentee of this Turk who allowed the mosque to survive went on to design the replica of the Saladin Mosque from the inside of the citadel. And it's in Istanbul. Do you have any guesses to what it might be called? Yeah, you're going to recognize it as one of the most popular in the world, the Blue Mosque. So the Blue Mosque 
had its roots here in Cairo. And this is the third alleged ripping off of ideas. So first we had coffee, which they think first came from Egypt, this Turkish shell coffee, falafel, and now the Blue Mosque. So you should definitely go see inside the Saladin Mosque, especially if you do not have a guide. I would just recommend ask for specifics before entering. For sure, you'll want to take off your shoes, of course. However, the security guard told me I should not cover my hair. That was interesting. I was very surprised by that. But you should double and triple check. Once you have a good idea of the mosques, you should also check out Coptic Cairo. And I had never heard the word Coptic before. It refers to Orthodox Christianity in Egypt, which compromises about 10%, so a small minority. Abu Sarga, that's A-B-U space S-A-R-G-A, is the oldest church in Egypt. And here you can see a church that was built over the site where Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt with baby Jesus. And they ran away from King Herod and they stayed for a short time. They stayed about three weeks at this location. Something I hadn't seen before was a map of all their travels in Egypt, which it was outside of the church in the alley and Egyptians kept record of their journey, which to me was absolutely amazing because there were many small towns named that, you know, I'd never heard of before. And to just know like a local account of where Jesus and his parents had fled to was super interesting to me. So I've named a lot of things to see and do in and near Cairo and one thing you should look into if it sounds interesting to you is the UNESCO site that I had never heard of before, but it's called Wadi El Hitan. That's W-A-D-I space E-L space H-I-T-A-N. And this is a special site that tries to explain the evolution of whales. And supposedly it has some pretty comprehensive fossil records that explain and explicitly prove evolution. I would have really liked to have seen that, and if I return to Egypt, I'm going to go, but it's one of the things I was really sad to miss and didn't know as an international tourist. I think it's more locally known and scientifically known. Whew, that was a lot of information to get you started in Egypt, and I'm hoping to publish more about the Nile south to more ancient sites and some of them even more famous, so stay tuned for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening and maybe share this podcast with someone you know who loves adventures.